to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. This is episode five of the Charming Intention series on the great work. Hello and welcome to the Great Work radio program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two-day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Ema Ramos of the University of Cambridge gave a shocking talk entitled Impurity, Auspiciousness, and Power, the Tantric Transformations of Laja Gauri at Kamakya, in which she presented images of female statuary blatantly presenting itself spread eagle outside of Hindu temples in India. It was a stunning exposition of whatever might be the female counterpart of ithyphallic iconography. Power, the Tantric Transformations of Laja Gauri at Kamakya. Please join me in welcoming Ima to the floor. Thank you. According to several Puranic texts, the Hindu god Shiva carried his wife, Sati, across India after her death. His grief risked the destruction of the world, so Vishnu, god of preservation, who you can see just to the left of Shiva, threw his discus and cut Sati's body into 51 pieces. These pieces fell to earth, scattered across the Indian subcontinent, and temples were built to enshrine them. Modern imaginings of the myth really focus on the detailed classification of these body parts and which temple or location they correspond to, as in this contemporary popular print and monument. The 51 temples became known as Shaktipitas, or seats of power. My PhD research focuses on three of the 51 sites, and I'd like to talk about one of them with you today. Sati's yoni, or vulva, is said to have been enshrined in Kamakya Temple in Assam, as classified in these images. You can see that I've circled them. <clears throat> the yoni in the sanctuary of the temple, which in Sanskrit is aptly named Garita Griha, or womb chamber, um, this consists of a sheet of stone that slopes downwards from both sides, meeting in a yoni-like depression. This hollow is constantly filled with water from an underground spring and is worshipped as the goddess in her manifestation as Kamakya. You can see from the photo that it's very hard to make out. 
entirely obscured by flower offerings, and there's very little candlelight. The Assamese Kalika Purana mentions the cave and yoni, indicating its presence from as early as the 9th century. The yoni is enshrined by a temple dating back to the 16th century. From an inscription preserved just outside the inner sanctum, it's revealed that the Koch king Naranayana and his brother and general Chilarai erected this temple on the ruins of an older one, also dedicated to Kamakya in 1565. Two stone figures in the antechamber, directly facing the yoni, represent them. This paper will explore how they harness the power of the goddess through tantric ritual and sculptural iconography. The significance of the aniconic yoni is articulated through an unstudied series of sculptures commissioned by the Kochas. This sculptural program has baffled scholars who have considered its elements somewhat mismatched, or in some cases have ignored their underlying significance. These two, for example, were dismissed as domestic scenes and references to folk life by Kamaluddin Ahmed. As for these other sculptures that you're seeing, they have never been recorded or published before, let alone studied. The research I'm presenting to you today is based on field work I carried out over the summer at Kamakia. This kind of imagery was misunderstood much earlier on as inspired by the dark arts. Sir Charles Eliot, in his 1921 text on Hinduism and Buddhism, wrote that, quote, The temple of Kamakia leaves a disagreeable impression, an impression of dark evil haunts of lust and bloodshed akin to madness and unrelieved by any grace or vigour of art. The temple testifies to the atrophy and paralysis produced by erotic forms of religion. However, through a close examination of Kamakia's 16th century socio-religious context, I would like to show that there is an articulate coherence and interaction between sculptures. This coherence is tied to the harnessing of tantric power through fertility, as recourse for sunless couples, and apotropaic symbolism, i.e. magico-protective imagery to ward off malignant forces. Both are united in their activation of the temple's potency. Virtually all the early sources agree that Kamakia is one of the oldest centres of tantric practice and the site at which some of the earliest tantric texts were written. So, I would like to begin by addressing very briefly what Assamese Tantra is and what it is not. Throughout early Indian, Tibetan, Muslim and British accounts alike, Assam was long infamous as a land of black magic. According to a Tibetan author of the 17th century, there are so many witches and various kinds of demons and devils there. In fact, some of the sculptures which represent female devotees have often been misinterpreted as sorceresses presiding over their cauldrons, and I'm showing you an example of one here which has been detached from the temple itself and stands nearby. Today, we in the West, of course, have redefined Tantra to mean sexual ecstasy. I had to include Sting on the slide, who is, after all, almost single-handedly responsible for reducing Tantra to a form of sex therapy. Yet anyone who actually sits down to read the many Sanskrit Tantras quickly discovers that most of them have relatively little to say about sexual intercourse. Hugh Urban, whose book, The Power of Tantra, provides the only comprehensive overview of the practice in Assam, finds it most useful to define Tantra as a form of corporal spirituality, an affirmation of the visceral qualities of existence, and a vision of the world as power or shakti, 
which is inherently feminine and can be mediated through the body itself. Tantra can also be defined as a path of karma or desire. The meaning of karma ranges from sensual pleasure to the cosmic powers of creation and destruction. Tantra thus centres on the power of the goddess, power that can be unleashed through esoteric ritual and harnessed in the service of political rule, as we will see with the example of Koch patronage at Kamakia. During such rituals, power is attained by practitioners with the inherently po inherent potency of transgressive substances, such as semen and menstrual blood. This is most viscerally presented to us today through a particular sculpture I want to examine, depicting a squatting female figure displaying her vulva. Urban has referred to the sculpture as a menstruating figure because her pedendum is anointed by devotees with red vermilion or sindur. Although this is an accurate description today, it also reduces a whole history of meaning and iconography behind the figure, which stretches back to at least the 3rd century, if not much earlier. Indeed, her iconography conforms to images of the little-known goddess Lajagari, who in states such as Gujarat and Karnataka was not conceived of as menstruating, but was instead meant to suggest birth and divine creation. The best-known images of this goddess have a female torso and a lotus flower in place of a head, like the one in the middle of this slide. Their legs are bent up at the knees and drawn up to each side in a pose described as one of giving birth. The name Lajagari translates as without shame. She's the embodiment of, of fertility and creative power and was approached by devotees for granting of fortune and, and prosperity. Carol Bolon conducted a study of Lajagari in 1992 and identified four stages in her iconographic development. From an, an iconic pot, to lotus-headed figure without arms, to lotus-headed figure with arms and breasts, and finally, and most relevant to this study, the anthropomorphic figure. This latter persisted throughout Gujarat, Rajasthan and Maharashtra in the 6th and 7th centuries. The anthropomorphic form of Lajagari occurs, occurs most frequently accompanied by one or more devotees, usually female, as you can see with these two examples here. This makes it all the more convincing that whoever created the Lajagari figure at Kamakya must have been directly influenced by such an image, since here she is venerated by a female devotee too. This would indicate that at the root of this figure is the idea of body as a vessel being an icon of reproductive power. Bowen concluded that the commissioning of Lajagari's sculptures ended quite abruptly in the 11th century. So the question is, why was her form revitalised by the Cotches five centuries later in the 16th century? Stella Cramrish, in her study of this 11th century Alampur Museum Lajagari, identified the figure with the great goddess of the Vedic pantheon, Aditi, who in the Rig Veda is described as Upanapad, or one whose legs are extended in partition, representing the great womb from which the entire universe was born. Describing the figure of Lajagari Akamakya as evocative of this symbolism is certainly appropriate for the site, which essentially enshrines the vulva of a goddess whose body is associated with the earth itself. <clears throat> it is persuasive to assume that the Koches considered it a suitable visual manifestation of the aniconic yoni. Could it have been installed near the yoni chamber to give a fuller, clearer and more complete image of the goddess? <clears throat> 
The royal patronage of Lajagari by the Chalukya royal dynasty may provide some clues about the function of such an image under the Koch king. We know that this particular 8th century image at Gedrasvara temple in Karnataka was commissioned by the Chalukya king Vinayaditya. An inscription nearby records that he imposed a tax on sunless couples, so it seems likely that he needed soldiers for his military campaigns and may have found it necessary to provide the temple with an image of Lajagari as recourse for sunless couples. Lajagari's procreative capacity was emphasised even more so at Kamakia by multiple mother and child carvings. The Koch rulers struggled for power against the Ahams and Mughals. Needing soldiers, they may have found it necessary to provide Kamakia with such imagery, just as the Chalukyas had. One could argue that the mother and child carvings function as visually manifested wish fulfilments. This scene is represented on the western gate at Kamakia. The elderly woman in this case could represent the goddess in human form, imparting blessing on a mother and child. It's popularly believed that she appeared to devotees in this form, as dramatised in the 1967 film Devi Kamakshya, in which as a goddess she looks like a young virginal beauty and appears to the Koch king in her mortal manifestation as an elderly woman. However, while at other sites the Lajagari figures are auspicious images imparting blessing rather than erotic or apotropaic, I'd like to argue that this is not the case at Kamakia. In fact, her significance here changes from a goddess of fortune and fertility to a goddess of tantric menstruation. Crucially though, in this Assamese context, pregnancy and menstruation were not considered mutually exclusive. According to the Devi Bhagavata Purana, the god Vishnu united with the goddess Earth during her menstrual period, resulting in the birth of the mytho-historical king Naraka, who went on to become the original founder of Kamakya. The same text, written in the 11th century, describes an annual festival which is the after-effect of the union between Vishnu and Earth. This is the Ambuvachi Mela, which today celebrates Kamakya's annual menstruation during the summer month of Asada, June to July. Its symbolism and rituals provide vital clues to understanding the figure of Lajagari at Kamakya. The festival is closely connected to the agricultural cycle. During this time of the year, the water runs red with iron oxide trickling over the yoni in the inner sanctum, so it appears as if the goddess is literally menstruating. During the festival, a resin cloth wrapped around the yoni is sought after by pilgrims and prized as a holy relic and talismanic protective amulet. In order to understand the deeper significance of this festival, as well as the Lajagari figure, we need to understand the place of menstruation in Hindu and religious practice. Sorry, Hindu culture and religious practice. Menstrual blood is considered to be an extremely powerful but also deeply impure substance. Throughout the classical Hindu law books, the Dharma Sutras, menstruating women are considered dangerous, threatening, and surrounded by all manner of taboos. In popular images of another tantric icon, Kali, who you can see on the left, we can assume that this terrifying, socially outcast goddess is menstruating for one simple reason. Her hair is wild and loose. Culturally, Hindu women were expected to wear their hair braided and bound. Wearing it loose was a sign of impurity, and only during menstruation were they supposed to let their hair down, so to speak. 
Significantly, Lajagari figures in other parts of India are always represented with hair tied up, but the Lajagari at Kamakya wears her hair down. As Madhukana notes, quote, whereas the Brahmanical ideology links menstruation to sin, guilt, punishment and fear, and regards a woman's body and sexuality as dangerous, the Shaka Tantras invert the orthodox values to their advantage. But what is the point of this transgression of traditional laws of purity? It centres on the channeling of power, transforming what is normally a, sor a source of pollution into a source of divine energy. <clears throat> Specifically, the worship of the goddess Kamakya was closely tied to political power. According to the Darang Rajam Sambali, the reconstruction of her shrine where the Kochas was done to ensure victory and safety when they waged war against Gauda in Bengal leading to the increasing emphasis on the martial character of the goddess. As the ultimate symbol of the kingdom, she was wedded to and gave power to the king. 16th century Yogini Tantra promised the adept worldly kinds of attainments, including the power to assume the throne and defeat enemies. This could be achieved through magical rituals known as avichara or, <coughs> or black magic. Um, this included Vashya, or bringing a person under the practitioner's control, Sambana, or making immobile, Ushatana, or eradication, and Marana, or killing. The Yogini Tantra also describes the different kinds of alcoholic mixtures and their application in these rites. It insists such methods will lead to a king's victory over his enemy. I would argue that the commissioning of the sculptural programme at Kamakya represents another means of strengthening and protecting the Koch kingdom. As George Michel points out, among the motifs that provide protection in temples are erotic female images and the displayed female yoni. From a cross-cultural perspective, we may inevitably be reminded of Sheila Nagigs, often found positioned over doors or windows on churches and castles throughout Europe and especially Ireland. Scholars believe they could have been intended to ward off death and evil spirits. There does seem to be a shared meaning in terms of apotropaic magic, i.e. a type of magic intended to turn away harm and misfortune. Lajagari's protective or apotropaic function is highlighted by several carvings of arches, two of which I believe are identifiable as female. The portrayal of female arches is in fact really quite rare in Indian sculpture and could have a range of symbolic implications. I'm particularly interested in this one, which directly faces the inner sanctum. It appears to be a pregnant warrior kneeling, bow in one hand and quiver with arrows in the other. Its prominent location opposite the Yoni Pitta and beside the sculpted portrait of the Koch king emphasises the importance of the figure and demands further analysis. According to the Yogini Tantra, Assam is said to have been originally the land of a group called the Kiratas or Sabaras a group of tribal siddhas, or perfected beings with paranormal abilities, both male and female, who inhabited remote mountainous areas across India. According to the 9th century Kalika Purana, they were said to be, quote, strong, ferocious, and addicted to meat and liquor. And more importantly, they were amongst the first worshippers of Kamakya. So what is the relation between the Sabaras and the archers at Kamakya? My research into other Shaktipitas led me to investigate the temple of Sri Sailam in Andhra Pradesh, which enshrines Sati's right anklet. 
Its sculptures are almost contemporary with those at Kamakia, dated to the 16th century and made under Hosala patronage. Several young female archers are depicted on the walls of the temple, which Rob Linrith believes represent Sabala huntresses. The Sabala women are well known in Hindu Siddha literature as consorts for tantric practitioners and as adepts themselves. The 16th century author Pingali Surana associated the Sabala ascetics of Sri Salam with, quote, lion riding, snake girdle siddhas, and the magical powers of flight. So they were clearly considered very powerful beings capable of protecting the temple. Can we assume that Sri Sailam and Kamakya were part of a circuit of holy places to be visited or inhabited by Siddhas, leading to iconographical influences? If the pregnant archer doesn't represent a Sabala huntress, perhaps she could represent a tantric yogini huntress. The 10th century yogini temple of Hirapur in Orissa represents such a figure armed with bow and arrow. Nothing has been written on yogini archers because they're so rare, so their identity remains a mystery for now. What we do know is that the yoginis in general have a reputation for being frightening female figures who are fond of flesh and often associated with magical powers. To incur the curse of the yoginis is regarded as a fate worse than death. The yoginis do indeed have a strong visual presence at Kamakia, carved on the body of the temple around the same time as the rest of the sculptures we've seen. The daily worship of Kamakya even includes the invocation of the yoginis, an indication they were considered aspects of the goddess herself. However, given the fact that there seems to be no precedent for the representation of pregnant yoginis, it would be highly unusual if our pregnant archer at Kamakya portrayed one. I'd like to suggest that the pregnant archer points to a mixed iconography of promoting fertility and protection simultaneously in the service of the Koch king, just like Lajagari. Her positioning near Naranarayana is very important, not only in terms of proximity, but also because of the emblem beside him, which I've circled, which alludes to a bow and arrow. I believe her role lies in subduing the violent forces of the goddess Kamakya, explaining her submissive devotional stance directly in front of the inner sanctum. Indeed, the Koch kings poured upon the tantric powers of Kamakya in the strengthening of the kingdom, but that power was inherently dangerous, and great care had to be taken in her worship. Kamakya appears as an ambivalent goddess, with two different sides to her, a shanta, or peaceful side, and an ugra, or terrifying side. According to widespread belief, Nara Narayana snuck into the inner sanctum one night to watch her in her beautiful sensual manifestation, as a young virgin dancing upon the Yenipita. <coughs> this story is acted out in the 1967 film mentioned earlier. When she caught him, she immediately transformed into an image of her savage manifestation and blinded him. The temple of Kamakya itself has today been largely purified of the more transgressive rites, transformed into a devotional center of popular worship, partly as a result of no longer being tied to royal patronage. It has since survived on the margins in rural areas and remote tribal communities. The reasons for the decline of Tantra long predated the coming of the British colonial authorities. In fact, it was already well underway during the 16th century itself. The Neo-Vaishnava reform movement led by Shankaradeva preached devotional love for Krishna exclusively through chanting and prayer, 
and was just as critical of Tantra as the British colonizers and Christian missionaries would be two centuries later. However, despite the sterilizing and deodorizing of Tantric practice, the figure of Lajagaris continued to be revered as a menstruating goddess despite its explicit iconography. Along with the rest of the sculptures commissioned under Koch patronage, it is a reminder of the temple's magico-religious tantric past. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eva. That was really interesting. <laughs> Intense, but interesting. Um, I noticed that a lot of the sculptures that you've showed were from the latest was circa 1565. Have you found in your research any that go a little bit later? And I know you mentioned that it's now kind of a marginalized worship, but did you have you found anything like, for example, the 17th or 18th centuries? Or? You mean of like of the goddess? Yeah. Um, well, no. I, I think um, when the thing is that uh, this is probably the latest one. I mean, of this particular form of the, of the goddess. Um, but um, I suppose it was interesting that it took so long for there to be any sort of um, thorough study of, of, of her iconography because previously when other scholars had studied Tamakia, for example, I suppose they were kind of under the influence of a sort of like slightly fusty Victorian yeah. approach to the temple, so it was just completely ignored entirely. Okay. Um, and even museums kind of refused to exhibit um, the figure, which is yeah. they keep it in storage. There's lots of American museums across India. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I mean, but I don't know of any later than this. Yeah. But they're still some of them are still worshipped in situ. There are two that are worshipped in situ in different parts of India, and they're um, actually anointed with um, ghee instead of yeah. sindur, which um, actually is symbolic of um, semen according to Vedic early Vedic texts. So it's sort of a contrast between the reproductive function and the water. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what I'm saying about that. It's interesting. Does anybody have any other questions? Yes. I'm a little bit puzzled because, of course, things like um, the, the lingam and the yoni are universally worshipped and people wear those around their necks and they're really pretty overtly sexual because that's exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. In a way, even more sort of, to a western eye, even more offensive than something like this. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, the, the mother goddess is such particularly Kali up in Bengal is still very powerful. And there are tantric cults like this, Siddhanta Shaiva, down in the south of India, in the whole Madras area, and in Tamil Nadu. So, could you clarify for me, please, what is very special about this that has died out of that still almost universal contemporary Hindu cult of sexuality and, and tantrism? Um, I suppose if you're um, going to link the other forms of Lajagari more explicitly with erotic functions, like, um, I mean, if you were to compare it maybe with, um, I don't know, say, like, I suppose the most of, for example, the erotic sculptures like Kajarahu, for example, where you have figures who are displaying their vulva, but they're sort of, um, it's much more explicitly erotic because they're um, actually sort of um, self-displaying, they're actually sort of, um, using their hands to display the yoni, whereas here it's, that's not there, and also she usually has a halo as well. Um, so they're more sort of mortal, figures from a kind of more mortal realm, whereas she's sort of, um, 
sort of more divine, um, which differentiates her from other more explicitly erotic figures. Um, I, I suppose that doesn't really quite answer the question. No, I, I know what you mean because it's that pose, isn't it? That's how you give birth in Asia. You crouch down and you press down, which is infinitely more sensible than lying on your back with your feet in stirrups. Well, most of them are supposed to be lying horizontally, actually. Yes. The majority of the electric area figures are, are designed to be sort of laid down in a sort of superman posture. So, um, whether it's only the anthropomorphic forms of electric area, which seems to be placed as if they're squatting, um, or sort of rather you know, standing, well, squatting horizontally, vertically, but that could have been because of the limitations of carving on a vertical wall, mm -hmm. or it could. I'm, yeah, I'm not quite sure about that yet. Forgive me for that, I'm deeply unfamiliar with this material, but I was wondering, historically, how do the roles of women in the power structures of the Clash Kingdom relate to the role of the goddess in sort of stabilizing their power? Yeah, uh, the role of women in, well, in, in Catholic ritual. Yeah, uh, well, uh, generally in, in Tantric ritual, Mm. A woman is is sort of used as an instrument of power rather than necessarily it's still kind of a male dominated thing. Although the woman is powerful in the sense that during tantric ritual she can be considered an incarnation of the goddess herself and is worshipped as such. But in a sense she is still being used in a rather instrumental way, like in order to harness that power through her her figure. But I mean, so uh, women are often Especially if, if they're menstruating, that's that's the ideal. Or if they're um, also the idea is if they're a prostitute or another man's wife, um, in tantric ritual during sexual rites, um, that sort of yeah. So as I say, it's kind of more like instrumental rather than having kind of negative. So the statue actually has agency that real women in this period never sort of have. It's actually yeah. Well, the thing is that I suppose Kamakia is herself. Her power is harnessing the service of the king, in the same way that uh, a woman might be considered an incarnation of the goddess. She's sort of used in the same same way, but you know, it's sort of, the institution is a male-dominated one, I suppose. Like in the West, as a, there was a big fascination with, um, with the idea of Hinduism and goddess worship, even surrealism sort of coming out of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and then in New Age spirituality, where feminists embraced that kind of, um, of imagery, particularly with regards to the goddess Kali. I'm just wondering whether you could mm -hmm. talk a bit more about to what extent that is a hot topic maybe in India yeah. in terms of uh, sort of gender specific usages of this uh, Hindu goddess tradition. Um, yeah, feminists have sort of um, jumped on Kamakya, definitely, in the 21st century, like um, particular um, Brenda Dobbio has written quite a lot on, just recently, on, on Kamakya from a very feminist perspective. Um, I mean, I, I suppose there, there is a little bit of a, a danger in approaching it in that, in that way, um, sort of taking it out of context a little bit. I mean, the way she approaches it is very much... Um, in a, sort of seeing it as a very empowering thing for women when it's not, you know, I mean, yes, it can be seen like that. It's just that these things are kind of changed according to the 
I mean, yeah, it picks up on them. I, I think it changes the meaning of the words. This guy I think Dr. Morty Spivak was looking at Bengal poetry to the mother goddess and uh, using it in various ways as sort of empowering and a complex argument, but interesting argument. That's not what I meant to say. What are the priests that serve her? Are they just ordinary Brahmins or is there a special kind of order of priests that serve this temple? Um, yeah, now, nowadays it's it's the, the Brahmins that are you know specifically of the Shakta set, yes. um, and I mean in terms of like uh, uh, tantric rituals going on, that sort of that I mean that doesn't happen at Kamakya anymore. It's sort of being totally institutionalised. Are, so are there any happening. special rituals for um, them? Is I mean, it the usual artists and stuff? Yeah, exactly. And also, I suppose like in place of during the Ambavachi festival, whereas before you might have the the taking of the ritual drink of, um, of menstrual fluid. Now it's much more about um, handing out the pieces of, of cloth that are um, touched with the, the menstrual blood from the yoni. Um, so it's sort of gone from esoteric to exoteric, much more like a public um, mainstream um, form of worship there now. Thank you for listening to the Great Work Radio Program. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program.